0: Cycle this week. So, this evening it's the Rachel Withers edition <laughs> of Spin Cycle. <laughs> Broadcasting from the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, lands for which sovereignty has never been ceded, always was, always will be Aboriginal land. I'm Jess Lily, and as you might have guessed, Charlie is not in the studio tonight. He's moving house. End of an era, beginning of another, all that stuff, uh, which is very exciting for him. But I'm thrilled to welcome contrib- contributing editor to the monthly Rachel Withers to the studio in his place. Welcome, Rachel. Thank you so much for coming in.
1: Thank you for having me. I feel like I'm never going to meet this elusive Charlie.
0: <laughs> yes, one, one day we're going to all have to do it together. <laughs> um and thank you for joining us on a sitting week too i know that that's uh that's big business yeah and i apologize
1: in advance if my brain is a bit fried uh on a thursday of a sitting week
0: (laughs) if you just suddenly start slowly drifting away i'll um i'll snap you back um we'll be talking to the ABC Indigenous Affairs editor, Bridget Brennan. Uh, We're going to chat about last year's uh, Four Corners report, how many more, an incredible investigation into missing and murdered Aboriginal women that was just awarded a gold quill from the Melbourne Press Club last week. And um, we figure it's one of those things our media cycle just spins so fast and is always kind of you know stories just disappear from the ether so it's um it's it's a really uh, incredible investigation to look back on and and sort of find out what's happened since but um, as we're here, tell us about reporting on a sitting week from afar, because you you're do not you not going to Canberra, are you?
1: No, no, I watch it all online, um, and I think I prefer it that way. I prefer to have a bit of distance um, and to okay. have a lot of
0: screens up at once. <laughs> Set the scene. Are you at home, in Ugg boots, in a bath? Is it a... A <laughs> <laughs> wish. What's I, the situation? I'm sitting there with my
1: little uh, rescue pug, um, <laughs> oh. who's often chewing on the Ugg boots, um, but no, I'm... I'm <laughs> (laughs) I'm set up really from, you know, seven in the morning, listening to the major political interviews of the day, Um, you know, tuning into a little bit of the morning television, flicking between things. Um, And then, yeah, it's really a matter of trying to keep up. I mean, most of what happens in the House and Senate, you don't have to watch. It's a lot of nothing. Mm. But um, being sort of just on top of it to know that a big debate is coming or a big... um, you know incident is occurring and you mm. can usually see that breaking on Twitter first so Twitter is actually a really big part of my day unfortunately mm. um, and so yeah it's kind of just waiting for that um, especially because I don't I don't report all day I'm I'm waiting to decide what my column is going to be so mm. I'm waiting to find out what that key moment of the day is or the key issue um, and so sometimes it 7am I'm like yeah it's probably going to be this and then at 11 something absolutely ludicrous happens um in the senate or in the house um or in the media and so yeah it's, it's just trying to keep on top of it all until something jumps out
0: and why do you prefer to um to report from a from a distance from from the safe haven of Melbourne I mean I'm sure there's many reasons not to go to to Canberra during sitting
2: week And not you having to deal it. with politicians is yeah, nice exactly. um <laughs>
1: Yeah, look, I mean I just prefer I think it's a I I you know, think for some types of journalism being there is really helpful. Um I like to have a bit of healthy distance. Mm. Um you know, I I'm not really like in the corridors of power having conversations with people. I'm um yeah, I'm I'm kind of watching it the same way any political junkie would watch yeah. it, but then I get to, to offer my take on it all.
0: And were there any um what were your standout moments this week so far? Oof. putting it was you on a really, the It was a
1: massive week. Mm. I mean, it's been actually a really big week for policy.
0: Mm. There's,
1: I mean, there's been a bunch of stupidity as well, and there always is. It's been actually particularly
0: stupid, some of oh, the yes, stuff that's was been a, going on. There was a moment where uh, Albo left the chamber.
1: Oh, yeah. How <laughs> dare he? Um, no, every, everybody's getting uh, quite rowdy in question time. Mm. It, you know, I often just retweet the same tweet during question time, which is that question time should be illegal. Like it's a a waste (laughs) of everybody's time. Um, The questions are ludicrous. Mm. Why can, you know, why does, uh, why do Australians always pay more under
0: labour or, ridiculous questions about the voice and what it can and can't do mm. um yeah there was a new word introduced to the lexicon this week was it judicialism or something there was a I, I can't I remember that one. Gonna, I'll find it I'll look it up I'll come back I'll come back to you we're on
1: hearing that. a lot of words like that at the moment um but look amongst all the the nonsense um there was some really big policy outcomes this week and um you know I think Monday especially that we finally got a resolution on the safeguard mechanism. Um, We'd been sort of watching that bubble along between Labor and the Greens. I mean, everything is actually now between Labor and the Greens because the coalition are not participating in
0: anything. Um, yeah, they wrote their, themselves out of that debate a long time ago, did Yeah, they?
1: out of all of the debates, to be honest. Mm. So Labor have managed to pass that. Uh, they also got a deal on their um, manufacturing National Reconstruction Fund, a little bit less sexy than climate change, so probably didn't get quite as much attention, but they did a A deal with the Greens on that uh, week before last Um, and now we're on to the next sort of Labor-Greens fight Mm. which is the uh, housing fund which hasn't had a happy ending yet
0: Yes and I think we're going to talk a little bit more about that after um, we speak to Bridget in as much as you know the way Labor are sort of managing themselves in government, but uh, there is, um, speak, you know, speaking of the Liberals, you know, or the Coalition still having some role in our um, voting system. There have been, there's been an election and there's a by-election, the New South Wales state election and the uh, Aston by-election.
1: Yeah, so the New South Wales election was last weekend, and we've mm. got Aston this weekend, um, and they're, um, I guess recirculating these questions about the Liberal Party and what the hell is wrong with it uh, <laughs> because New South Wales meant that they've now uh, lost the mainland. That was the last yeah. government they had on the mainland. Uh, and then Aston is coming up and that is um, – it's a it's a by-election to replace Alan Tudge, the uh, former minister, um, who is resigning in uh, some might say disgrace, um, yeah. and – even though it's a um, by-election for a Liberal seat, probably going to stay Liberal, there's a lot of focus on it because if the Liberals lose that, it's actually a really big deal because mm-hmm. um, governments don't tend to win by-elections. It's just a thing that... Um, the opposition always wins by-elections because it's about, you know, voters giving the government a kick. But if the but Liberals lose the it, it will be thing. catastrophic for them.
0: Yeah, they used to say the same thing about sort of state governments after, you know, if there's a federal um, government of one party, you know, they off, there's yeah. often a correction. By... People want to
1: balance it out yeah. or give them a kick. Or, yeah. Um, yeah, but look, Aston is traditionally a Liberal seat. Uh, the margin shrunk to something very, very small, I think 2.8% at the federal election. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, if, if Labor manages to somehow take it, it's going to be potentially the death knell for Peter Dutton's leadership, people are saying, because it's, it's his to lose. You know, it's Labor will consider even uh, getting close a victory.
0: Mm-hmm. And what was your take on the coverage of the New South Wales election? I mean, I, I paid zero attention leading up to it. Of course, I watched it. I mean, what else is there to do on a Saturday <laughs> night in Melbourne other than sit at home and watch a interstate uh, <laughs> election that I you... I <laughs> think many of us
1: did. Uh, it
0: um, it, look, it we makes all me question my Wales life politics, choices. But... <laughs> um,
1: but yeah, look, I think that was... It. I think there has been so much going on in federal politics that the New South Wales election got a lot less attention than Mm. you would think. In fact, I think last time I was here, we just had a Victorian election. Yes, that's right. And, of course, we're in Victoria, but I was covering that a lot um, because we had sort of the Daniel Andrews stairs, Mm. you know, debacle. And, um, yeah, the New South Wales election was really clean and so I think we all just didn't pay as much attention as we might have otherwise. Like it's kind of nice that it was so civilised um, and on election night you heard... One Catholic
0: versus another.
1: Yeah. <laughs> um, but you heard Dominic Perrottet giving quite a gracious concession speech. Um, mm. They, you know, neither of them got dirty, uh, you know. It was it was kind of like what politics could be.
0: The media projected a close um, result, didn't they? And, I mean... It probably isn't um, as clean of a Labor victory as perhaps it looked like on Saturday night. The projections, they they did project a... Uh, majority labor majority on saturday night but it doesn't necessarily look like that's going to happen now but once again uh what's with polling and um the way you know the the media is there just now like we're just going to call it as a close race it's almost like in real estate when they're like we're just gonna we're just going to say the, the you know, we're, we're going to price the house $200,000 lower than it actually is just to get people there, you Look, know, yeah. just to get people to buy the papers or tune in or whatever.
1: I think if if the media says it's going to be close, then they're sort of, they're hedging their bets because they're sort of right either way. You know, if, isn't, if they...
0: isn't polling supposed to be you accurate? You would think, you would think. Um, <laughs> What's the point? What's the point of
1: polling? <laughs> well, I think what was interesting, I think the polls were saying Labor, but people don't really trust them anymore. Mm. But um, what was really interesting in the final days um, was that the Sydney Morning Herald endorsed the Perrottet government again. And mm-hmm. so I think in the, the the night of the election and in the days after, people were like, how out of touch is this newspaper? This mm. is Sydney's newspaper. Um and it was a really old, tired government and, you know, it's we're having arguments about just how much it was a, um, you know, how much this was about the Liberal brand or about the fact that this was a, a 12-year-old government. But the fact is the Sydney Morning Herald got it wrong. Mm. They didn't read
0: the public mood. Mm. Well, that's been the same in Victoria and the same federally, I think. Um, you know... Far be it from the, for the media to learn from their own mistakes. <laughs> I'd <laughs> rather just keep repeating them, and uh, you know it's interesting because I think from afar, yes, it looks like you know everything's falling red. The the mainland is is falling to Labor, but to your point, this has been a long serving Liberal government, even if Perata is quite recent. But the reason there has been there's been about four premiers in a row, haven't there? And all of them have fallen at the hands of um, the ICAC, mm. and so you can. Imagine just that sort of um, corruption after corruption, and so many liberal ministers have had to resign because of um, the you know th- these the kind of ongoing ICAC proceedings. You can understand why you know it doesn't necessarily it's not necessarily the country kind of moving to labor. You, you can understand why locally you'd just be like, "I've had enough of this shit."
1: <laughs> yeah, and I mean especially the. The New South Wales Coalition. I mean, but, like, also that's just New South Wales. Like, New South yeah, Wales right. Labor people tend to be pretty corrupt as well. So yeah. let's see what comes next. Um,
0: you know, oh, and I and the
1: ICAC is, is, like, one of the more powerful watchdogs in the yeah. country. Um, but, yeah, it is interesting, this debate of, like, how much it is about the country moving towards Labor because, you know, um, you've got Sky News um, saying that, the Liberal Party has become too woke mm. um, and Liberal Party needs to move back to the right um, because
0: they're not offering a point of difference with Labor. There's real tension within the party on that, on that oh, front, isn't yeah. there? And,
1: I mean, you saw the moderates come out almost straight away saying, look, like we staved off the teals in this state mm. because we are moderate, because we are centrist, because people like actually like us mm. um, and – it doesn't make sense for us to move right. There's no votes for us over there. Um, but, look, I think the fact that the whole country has turned red is saying something about where we're at at the moment. And it, it's strange that Labor's not really taking that as any kind of endorsement to go left themselves.
0: I know. And we should talk more about that after we speak to Bridget, except Tasmania. Let's not forget Tasmania. <laughs> oh, of Tasmania. course, yeah.
1: <laughs> Triple R on FM, digital, online, on demand, podcasts, and via the app.
0: Bridget Brennan has had a long career reporting at the ABC with a little CNN in the US thrown in for good measure. Currently the ABC Indigenous Affairs editor. She was previously their European correspondent in London and the National Indigenous Affairs editor. And he's been bringing stories from Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities to national attention for more than a decade. Bridget is a Jaja Waring and Yorta Yorta woman and the very recent winner of the Melbourne Press Club's highest honour, a gold quill, For the Four Corners report, How Many More? Investigating the Crisis of Missing and Murdered First Nations Women. A warning to listeners we might cover topics of violence against Indigenous uh, people and communities, particularly women, in the program tonight. Welcome to Triple R, Bridget. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's our pleasure. And congratulations on the Gold Quill, which I have to say you won alongside uh, Susan Dredge, Brooke Fryer and Stephanie Zillman, making you the first female Indigenous reporting team to steer a Four Corners investigation, which is just awesome. Um, For listeners who might not have seen how many more which uh, went to air last October, can you give us an overview of the investigation?
2: Yeah, well, we set out to look at uh, the crisis of missing and murdered Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander women in this country. So listeners might know that in um, other populations, whether First Nations um, populations, there have been some significant investigations, so in Canada and the US. Um, There have been some significant investigations into the crisis of um, murdered and missing Indigenous women. In Canada, there's been a full-scale massive inquiry. The US, similar work has been undertaken to look at why um, the issue has been so overlooked and why... Aboriginal women are so overrepresented when it comes to women who've disappeared or have been killed um, in really violent circumstances. So we did know that in Australia that there, there is a problem, um, but it was a really difficult investigation to to even begin because there are no stats and there was no data for us to draw on. That was a problem also in Canada when the investigation sort of went nationwide to look at what was happening um, to Indigenous women there. So we wanted to have a look at, can we try and get some data at least in the last kind of 20 years? And could we sort of build a picture of just how many women have either been murdered or have gone missing? And what we found was sort of more than 315 women at least. I mean, that was a conservative estimate because what we could do was only look at media reports. Um, we had some access to some colonial files. It was really painstaking research undertaken by my colleague, Fryer. Um And we really... It was open-source research, really, to look at um, what we could find, really compile the stories of these women... Um, And that figure is just so heartbreaking because it's hundreds hundreds of women who have families and loved ones um, who in some cases have never found their bodies um, or in other cases where they've been really murdered in awful circumstances. So, yeah, it was a really heartbreaking picture to have a look at what has happened at least since the year 2000.
0: When you look at an investigation like that, there must be so many it's so layered and so multifaceted, you know, and it must bring up so many different threads from institutional racism in the police, in the health system, you know, um, the, you know the gap, the um, in sort of cultural issues. There must be so many different layers that come into play. How do you then form, form that into, you know, a 40-minute... Program an investigation that that kind of has a through thread.
2: Yeah, that's so true. I mean, even if you had forty hours, I think you'd exactly. be <laughs> kind of skimming the surface. Yeah. Um, and for us, it was really challenging because I think um, you know we, we could have chosen it, it, having a look at the cases that we could have done. You know, there were literally dozens and dozens and dozens uh, that we could have told, but we have decided let, let's select three cases that really tell the story of what's happened to hundreds of these women. I mean, obviously, each story is unique. Um, Each woman is unique. They're all from different communities. They've got different cultural cultural protocols. They've got different kinds of life stories, but there are common threads um, in in each story. And I I guess, yeah, that was probably the really, really challenging part of the investigation because um, in many cases, you're talking about... um, family violence and domestic violence homicides of women. Mm. Um, in other cases, we don't know who the perpetrator was, we don't know their identity um, and they're unsolved cold cases, but predominantly we were looking at um, domestic violence homicides where women had been killed by a current or former partner. And so we decided to choose three stories and two of those were um, women who'd been murdered by current and former partners. And the third story was a woman who um, the case is unsolved, and it's it's um, still being examined by the by the coroner in Queensland, which is a really also a really common story where uh, typically the only information we were able to get on a lot of these cases was by looking at the coronial files, which you know certainly um, arguably the the coroner does do a really um thorough investigation of a death, but, it doesn't obviously tell the full story of someone's life and their personality and who they were and, you know, what they contributed to their community. Um, the coroner's job, obviously, is to investigate the deaths of these women. So it's it's kind of the end stage of their life. Um, but that was quite an important story to tell because of, of Constance May Watch show because That's a current investigation. There are two other investigations um, that have been underway in Queensland of Aboriginal women who've disappeared and their bodies. Um, Those two bodies haven't been found. Uh, And so, yeah, it was just a a case of looking at which families might, might want to speak to us um and how can we sort of tell the australian public about the common threads in in these women's lives and that, as you touched on um that sometimes allegations that investigations have been completely manifestly and inadequate mm. um that people have been let down by multiple systems and that the stories have not been told to the australian public in the way that we have kind of eulogised non-Indigenous women in this country rightly totally rightly every single woman you know deserves the airtime and the attention but why hasn't that happened for First Nations women is what we wanted to look at
1: um hey Bridget it's Rachel here um congratulations on the award so so well deserved um I I wanted to pick up on that there um you know like, as we've talked about, there there are so many threads of racism involved in every stage of this problem, um, you know, why first responders are not taking it seriously, um, why it's not being covered. But why is it, do you think, that the Australian media has been so lacks on this particular issue when I think mm. we all already knew that the stats were damning and and like you said, there wasn't data, but we knew that it was worse for this community. but why is it not something that the Australian media has looked into properly before?
2: Look, I think if you there's so many different <laughs> answers to that question, but one of the key problems is we don't have a critical mass of First Nations journalists mm-hmm. in this country um, so we do have a really proud and long history of Aboriginal journalism in Australia, but a lot of journalists have left the profession early. Um, It is a really, really difficult job. Like, it's extremely taxing, um, extremely traumatising, and we just don't, you know, often you'll find Aboriginal journalists are the only Indigenous person in the newsroom, sometimes in, you know, in their entire organisation. And so that's a really lonely job, and we haven't, I don't think, had the kind of support for Indigenous journalists to do this work, um, so that's one element. We are trying to change that as the ABC. We're now being led by Cassandra. She's an amazing, proud Wiradjuri woman, mother, friend of mine, um, <laughs> incredible investigator. Um, she's very, very modest person. So she'll hate me <laughs> saying all this, but you know, <laughs> she's now leading a team of Indigenous women. Um, as, you know, who are mostly kind of young journalists who are in the early to mid-career sort of stage, but. We, Stan Grant talks about this also, you know, that it, it is a really, really challenging job. A lot of people have left. Um, mm. And so we need much more support for Indigenous journalists. I'm, I could talk about this forever. We, that's a really, really important thing. And then I also just think that, I don't know Can I be frank and just say, like, we've had a really lazy tradition when it comes to the non-Indigenous reporting of Indigenous issues. Um, that's not to say there hasn't been fabulous work, um, you know, by... By non-Indigenous um, Australian journalists looking into um, issues pertaining to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. But, um, you know, it has not been like a really proud kind of investigative, interrogative tradition of looking at where the policy failures are in Aboriginal affairs. Um, you know, the press gallery, I think, that could be doing better and, and is starting to do better now that they have to do better because we've got this voice referendum but I think that has exposed you know the lack of kind of even questions about prime minister or of first ministers or of um, premiers and opposition leaders I really want to make sure we we see more of that, that that it becomes everyone's responsibility to lift this and to be putting it on the front pages um, in the way that we do with so many other issues.
0: Rather than reacting to an incident, actually proactively mm. asking the questions, and you yeah. tu- you touched on um, it's a it's a really taxing role, and um, the program aired on Four Corners in October last year, and I remember it was around the same time that uh, Cassius Turvey was killed. Um, it was a really full on <laughs> couple of weeks um, mm. f- for the community and I just wanted to ask it mu- you know it must have been en- enormously challenging for you to see the see that investigation kind of t- t- come come to e- go to air after all of that work how hard is it um, being an Indigenous affairs reporter? You can't walk away from the subject. This is your community and, and I imagine you feel an enormous responsibility to your community as well and to all Indigenous and First Nations communities. How do you look after yourself in this role as a reporter so that you can you can keep going?
2: Yeah, I think... Um, you don't always, and I'm learning, you know, as I go along, I've been doing it for a long time, um, how important that is because it's kind of like that that old cliche, if you don't have your seatbelt on, you know, you can't help anyone else. And I think, um, um, you know, one of the difficulties is, is sometimes, you know, we have wonderful trauma support at the ABC um, and, um, you know, a lot of resources to, to seek help if you need it but one of the things i found is it doesn't always impact you straight away like it literally Mm. might be two or three years down the road and you kind of go wow like the gravity and the enormity of a story a particular story or of the people that you've connected with um it will hit you much later down the track so I'm actually about to go go and do a project um at Oxford University looking at how we support um Indigenous journalists and looking at some of the best practice models globally because we know that um, Maori journalists, First Nations journalists journalists in Canada and the US um, are facing the same things. And so it would be really interesting to have a look at whether any mainstream or independent media organisations have good models for this. Because each person is individual. And and I think the cumulative effect of stories is Mm. is really, you know, like one story that you might think will be really, really traumatising maybe um doesn't affect you so much, but then it'll just be like one person you meet or one one quote or um, a smaller story or just something that will just sort of tip you over the edge. So we do need really good psychological um and trauma response to to the work that we do, and I think that's really important you know for people to understand during this voice campaign. Um, is that this is going to be really, really taxing for all Aboriginal people all around the country? Yeah. Um, I'm actually going overseas for part of the year. So I'm sort of, <laughs> That's a wow, good I'm strategy. Really I'll be back. I'll be back. <laughs> but um, you know, it, it it can be a really combative conversation, and um, yeah, for, for Indigenous journalists, we have to we're very responsible to the community so we're very mindful that we want our coverage to be really fair um and to be make sure that we're unearthing lots of different views um during this really kind of vexed campaign Mm. an important one obviously but yeah
1: i mean bridget i'd love to hear your thoughts i mean as as a non-indigenous person um who is trying to cover the voice fairly and um sensitively, um, what what advice do you have for non-Indigenous journalists trying to be part of this conversation?
2: Um, you know, I've been um, talking to lots of my family members about their views on The Voice. Um, I, I always think it's really interesting to <laughs> get the perspective of, you know, um, cousins and aunties and siblings and that sort of thing. Um, and also talking to my non-Indigenous family members as well, because I'm proud, you know, I proudly have a black and white family. Um, and I think the diversity of views just in that kind of, mm. you know, in that cohort is massive. Mm. So there's an example where, like, you can be in a room with 20 black fellows, and you, there's just so many nuances and layers to those views. So I think it's just maybe just being aware that it's not necessarily a hard yes or a hard no. Mm. Um, of course, it is just a, a lot of people, you know, there's really passionate people on both sides of the divide, I suppose. I don't like calling it a divide, but of the argument. Um, but that there's just so, the, particularly around this issue, there's just really layered views for really, really interesting um, contextual reasons and historical reasons. So, you know, I think what would be really interesting is for non-Indigenous people to you know, go go spend a night at a, at a community event, and and actually stand there and go and talk to. Don't just talk to two people. Go and talk to thirty people, um, and you know, get a sense of those of where why people have different views on this issue. Um, and you know, it, it's just I'm just so. I'm proud of our community for the respectful way that we're handling this debate. You know, as I say, you could be in a room with lots of different black fellows and even if they're totally diametrically opposed views, there's a lot of respect there, because um, I think the, the scepticism for the voice and the support for the voice comes actually from the same place, which is that we've been let down time and time again. Um, that's what I think is just the most interesting part of this debate is that people who are advocating for The Voice and and desperately believe and totally believe that it's going to be a game-changer believe that because they believe we need to have input into policy decisions, you know, into the decades. And then the people who totally disagree with The Voice um, often believe so because they have been let down over so many times where, you know, governments have promised solutions and they don't. So, yeah, just understanding... And and having that respectful lens as to why people might have different views is really, really really important for journalism because it's really important for non-Indigenous people to understand that.
0: I am um, just going to bring you back to how many more for a moment. <laughs> um, it's, it's been five months since the Four Corners program. It did ask how many more, you know, which is a really poignant question, like how many more deaths do we or, you know, missing women do we put up with and what has been the response to a program? I'm really interested when you put so much into an investigation, when you do the research and draw out the data where there isn't any and, you know, really, Bring that sort of an issue to light. What has been the response that you've seen?
2: I think the response we're proudest of and we're most um, pleased with is the response from Aboriginal women who contacted us and said, Thank you, thank you mm. so much. You know, we've been screaming into the abyss, basically. Um, I also want to acknowledge the incredible work of other Indigenous journalists. Uh, other Indigenous women who've brought this to light. You know, I'm talking about Isabella Higgins um, and Sarah Collard who investigated yeah. this a couple of years ago for ABC. Mm-hmm. Uh, the phenomenal work of Amy McGuire who's written about this, Marlene Longbottom, um, Hannah McGlade, Megan Davis, we uh, can go on and on. Many, many women who've written about this um, over a long period of time. And, you know, some of the elders we rang who were like, well, yeah, we've had... Murdered and missing Indigenous women for 200 years, we've been talking about this, you know. So, for, but the response from women who kind of emailed us or called us or messaged us, um, and the response from the families was really, really important to us. Uh, we also heard that a lot of Indigenous organisations, like I heard from multiple Indigenous organisations who said, we called all our employees in, you know. So sometimes I think we Sorry, the I just policy. missed
0: the last bit of what you said then because somehow the line went blank.
2: Uh, the We had a lot of Indigenous organisations, black organisations say, we watch this as an organisation mm. together. Yeah. Um, mm. We know that like a land council council in Central Australia, they were asked, you know, everyone come in and watch this. This is really important for us to sit down and watch together. Um And sometimes I think we chase a policy response or a royal commission Mm. or a, and I, it was quite a nuanced investigation and I, I think that for me, like that really made me cry that people, that black organizations, you know, actually collectively got together and sat down and, and had a response to this and watched it together and, and took it in, um, among one another. Um. But we we do know that like a a lot of academics are looking at the data. I think there's been questions asked of state governments about why aren't we counting? I mean there are different reasons for that. Um, There's I think a lot more to be done. We know there's a Senate inquiry that's going that's currently looking into this crisis. So we have a lot more to do, and I I I think there's going to be need you know there's not one perfect response to this Mm. but certainly the awareness i think um has been raised and we're really really heartened by that
0: bridget i'll let you go now thank you so much for joining us this evening it's been an awesome conversation and i'm really keen to hear uh when you get back from oxford that work sounds really brilliant Mm. that you're doing for uh the community of um aboriginal journalists in australia and um please Let's um let's chat more when you're back. I hope so.
2: Thanks, Jess. Thanks, Rachel.
0: Congrats again. So well deserved. RRR. How amazing is Bridget Brennan? Oh my god, incredible. What a I just I can't wait to hear um, you know, the research that she's doing overseas i think it's so so important to link that sort of common experience between indigenous communities globally because it's such mm. a you know it's just it just repeats in in every kind of system doesn't it
1: yeah and and to have someone as as skilled and sensitive as Bridget going over to study it just mm. it's fantastic to hear speaking of
0: skilled and sensitive <laughs> <laughs> what a segue <laughs> we <laughs> We did um, mention at the top of the show, obviously, with New South Wales falling to the red zone. We have a completely Labor mainland. Socialist utopia of Australia. (laughs) Well, you'd hope. However, one of the uh, mildest federal governments, I mean, some there has been a lot of pushback against how uh, gently, gently um, the federal Labor government is being with certain policies and... Um, This is um, this is the big promotional moment for your forthcoming (laughs) article (laughs) in the in the forthcoming monthly magazine, which I believe you can pick up in store tomorrow. But no, you've got a fantastic piece piece in um, the new monthly. Rachel uh, headline: "Dal M for Mandate," which I love. Um, And there is just this insistence, whether it's from the opposition, whether it's from certain quarters of the media, as soon as Labor sort of deviate, or as soon as, and even the government uses it as its own excuse when. negotiating with the greens this kind of idea that we can't go further because uh, there is or isn't a mandate from voters what is this what is going on with the labor federal government why don't they just grab this moment in history by the bollocks <laughs> and go full goff on this shit I you know i honestly
1: don't know <laughs> i mean this i wrote this piece because the invoking of the term mandate has always bothered me um it's not in the piece, but like the very first interview I ever did, like as a politic, as a uh, student journalist was with Corey Bernardi. And oh I God. challenged this idea <laughs> that the then Liberal government had a mandate because on um, the plebiscite, because I just, governments are always claiming mandates as an argument to push through a policy. Like they don't have the numbers, but they say, but we have a mandate for this. Um. Every government has done it. It's been happening, you know, I looked back and, like, you know, Menzies was doing it. Um, And the the thing is, like, uh, the idea of a mandate is that you were elected and therefore your policies have special powers and, uh, you know, special um, authority. But we don't – we rarely have a government win a majority in both houses. Mm. So a government doesn't actually have – all power to do whatever it wants, um, you, you could also ask questions, and many people do, over what policies of a platform actually got the government elected. You can't say that people, like, went through and ticked all the policies they no, like. No, that, so, that's not on the voting form. I mean, mandates are nonsense and they're something that governments invoke or uh, oppositions use against governments to say they don't have a mandate for something they didn't run on, which is
0: ridiculous. Or media, columnists. I mean, the amount of times I've seen it trotted out by journalists recently, is killing me.
1: Yeah, no, and, and, and people just use it when it's convenient. They mm. don't, you know, the, the opposition doesn't care about mandates when Labor wants to pass its housing fund or its National Reconstruction Fund, uh, but they do care about mandates when they go to touch super just a little tiny bit Mm. um, and they go, you don't have a mandate to do that. Well, do you believe in governments having a mandate or not? Um, And over time we've watched parties uh, believe strongly in mandates when they're the government and then suddenly not at all when they're the opposition.
0: I mean, in this instance, you know, just this week we saw the... um the, uh, you know, showdown with the Greens as over um, environmental policy. And it's just such a shame that, you know, you'd think that if anything could trigger a little bit more um, sort of confidence or, or action from the government, it would be something like the IPCC report that had just come out. And yet still the, there was such caution, you oh, know. Oh, and they have to be dragged by the Greens
1: Mm -hmm. um, in this case because the coalition isn't negotiating and they need the Greens' votes. They have to be dragged into going just a little bit further on so many things. And, I mean, on Wednesday, uh, yesterday, um, you know, it really started to do my head in and that's when I really hit my tired point for the week because we sorted out Safeguard on Monday and then it, it happened again with the housing fund and you know the government have a particular number, the greens have a particular number, and the government labor despite being you know party of the left party of the working class uh you know albanese you grew up in social housing they don 't want to go any further even though they 've got
0: a balance of power that is a progressive one that 's pushing them it 's unbelievable the- it 's unbelievable honestly i'm am- that's the one as well that just it's such an it's such an own goal like what are you doing yeah and it comes back to like they, they just constantly
1: claim they have a mandate for exactly what they run on and not a cent more but the fact is labor has not got a majority in both houses the the they have a, a mandate to be the government and that's that's what i conclude is like the only mandate you get is a mandate to govern they don't have a mandate to on pass every single, every policy. single policy, they yeah. have to work with the Senate and every government has to contend with the Senate unless they somehow get a double majority, which is looking less and less likely with the rise of independence. And so, yeah, you do have to work with the Senate who can argue they've got their own mandate and they often do like um, the Greens have claimed they have a climate mandate. The coalition also claims they have a mandate for the policies they ran on because they got some votes
2: too.
0: <laughs> I think I'm I'm losing my mind. <laughs> I'm, we're back. I'm, I'm sort of thinking. I'm I'm looking um, fondly at the manosphere from last fe- last week rather than the mandate, um, which is an incel in joke. If anyone cared to <laughs> cared to probe that any further, dropped like a lead balloon. Um, I guess my question around that is, you know, is it more that is, is labour so conditioned conditioned to, um, you know, to the, the, to so in the Canberra bubble they're so conditioned to to compromise, to do deals, to you know, to be cautious, yet lest they go too far and ha- and come up against some kind of backlash that they just don't have the spine for this anymore.
1: Look, I I do think there's an element of that. I think they have been scared by the last two elections where they had real progressive policies and they lost Mm. um and that's then seen as a a you know counter mandate not to go that far (laughs) but i mean we really did see um especially on climate like a a, an election that people called the climate election like whether you look at the teals or the greens increasing Mm. their their vote picking up three seats in the house um yeah, Labour just doesn't seem to want to take this message. They're just mm. very scared. They're like, "This is our little, um, little box of policies, and we will only, um, we will only do these ones." Um, I must say, I did find the super changes sort of heartening because yeah. um, that was them going, "Okay, we didn't run on this," and the electorate you know, the, the Liberal Party tried to run a little scare campaign but the polling showed the electorate loved it. Exactly. They loved it.
0: Yeah. Well, also, I mean, there are other forces at play, obviously, with environmental and climate policy. You know, there are so many. There's, there's, oh, they
1: don't want to give the Greens a win as well.
0: Well, there's that. But there's also enormous lobbying from, mm. you know, there's a 100 projects that are being lobbied to go ahead, you know, and so for them a compromise is maybe striking out some but letting, you know what I mean, mm. whereas when you're sitting back here, it's like, no, any of them you know, according to the IPCC report, oh. is, a, is a loss, is Hearing a fail.
1: Chris Bowen repeatedly say that it would be irresponsible to ban coal and gas, that was the word that was in his talking points, irresponsible to ban coal and gas, when the IPCC report <laughs> it's was <inevitable>. saying... <laughs> it, the most irresponsible
0: thing you could do is let those go ahead but um i I digress it's depressing (gasps) speaking of something so much more less depressing no i I thought we i thought we were done with more redeeming Um, not yet (laughs) not yet the witch has risen no don't i can't say that because it'll get you know played on the sky media news media show um so there was last week when we were here uh, the uh, opposition leader in Victoria, Don Pizzuto, had um, declared uh, a, a no confidence. Wasn't he going to strike her? I, can't, I don't know the official He was going to expel her. Expel her, that's it. And then uh, the party room met and she didn't get expelled uh and uh she was um supposed to what make a statement condemning the behavior of uh her compadres <laughs> <laughs> and of course the nazis um which you know w- w- and the result of that is that it looks like f- for all intents and purposes john pseudo has you know that has just ended so badly for him what are your thoughts on on that whole sort of saga
1: I mean, he's been humiliated by it. He basically went out there and said, "You know, she's going to go. I have the numbers." Um, and, and it then, was the
0: right thing to do. I mean,
1: of course, and it was and it was brave of him to make that take that stand in the first place. Uh, and then they went into this two and a half hour long meeting on Monday, and it was uh, by all accounts a very emotional meeting. Um, and. Uh, Deeming shared some personal stories and also uh, condemned supposedly the people she was supposed to condemn. Mm. So uh, John Pursuda comes out and he starts doing media interviews explaining why he's backed down and basically he changed it from she had to go to, no, all I ever wanted was this condemnation and at the same time he's going out and doing those, <laughs> she's getting on Twitter where everybody can see what you say and... um <laughs> basically one of these um anti-trans campaigners uh tweeted you know oh you know you sh- we should sue for defamation F- uh,
0: sue someone for defamation i think John pseudo but um then you in must this sue engage legal representation <laughs> i'm so sorry and that was it was directed at angie jones and moira Deeming. angie was one of the organizers yeah. of the Posey um, parker tour. and then
1: um Moira came along and said, oh, no, I never condemned you or you or you, which was exactly the people she supposedly condemned and was this condemnation, which was all John Basuda had ever really wanted, which... It's not true,
0: um, and the way she tweeted it as though it was just a personal little note, like a as though it was a little WhatsApp group or something. <laughs> but it's it's like, babe, we can see you. Yeah, but you know what that says to me? She doesn't give a shit. You know, like oh no, and, and she the- did
1: this while John Pasquale was out there trying to defend himself. Yeah. I mean, she's she's completely won this, um,
0: and and I don't think we. I think you know you can't sort of you can't under. Um, you, you, Like what she has said publicly is bad. It's nasty. It it is anti-trans rhetoric. It's the same sort of, you know, um, rhetoric that we're seeing from, um, you know, from, from sort of taken up. By this kind of cause and, and and more as well. So I don't think it, it's not that she was unjustly attacked. It wasn't like she was being politicised. You would in fact question why she ever, you know, was put forward by the Liberal Party in the first place, as a lot of did people did at the at time. The time. Yeah. What's interesting is the fact that a lot of the Liberal Party in Victoria did come to her defence publicly. You know, there was a big hoo-ha about someone flying back from their holidays for the vote and it it just shows you that it's again you know this the liberal party in victoria is broken and and john Pasudo is now completely sort of um kneecapped by this yeah
1: and i mean it's it's such a shame because he is considered the one thing that can
0: save the victorian liberal party from itself and uh no apparently not apparently not um, I think that's a bit all we've got time for. It's been so wonderful having you with us on Spin Cycle this evening, Rachel. Always thank you so, so much, much. Fun. Thank you for uh, having especially me. Especially during sitting week when I can see you just quietly sort of melting down the table. <laughs> <laughs> you will be asleep on the floor.
2: <laughs> and that's all for this week. Thanks for listening. You can find us every week on your favourite podcast platform.
1: And you can follow us on Twitter. At Naj Samble, At Lily Juice.
2: And at The Shuffle Diary.
1: You can also listen in at rrr.org.au
0: via on demand for the radio version of the show. Want to support Spin Cycle? Become a Triple R subscriber. Your subscription helps keep the station running and helps Triple R produce and create great radio and podcast content like this.